Good morning. Give me a second here to set up. Um, I've kind of a diva this morning. I asked Shay for two stands, so it's going to take me a, a second to get situated here with everything. Um, all right, here we go. I got my Bible, got my notes. All right, ready to go. Um, so as Phil said, um, this is uh, our teaching series called who do you say I am? We're trying to be Jesus' disciples. We're trying to answer that question for ourselves. Who is Jesus to each of us? And we want to lay the foundation for doing that by studying the Old Testament and the New Testament and finding that link between the old and the new. And the link, of course, is Jesus, right? He's the promise in the old and the promise fulfilled in the new. Um, and so... Um, we were in Isaiah at the retreat. Moses preached on Malachi last week. Today, I'm going to be preaching from the book of Haggai. Yes, that's a book of the Bible. And uh, next week, as Phil said, um, Marcy's going to be covering the several hundred year period between the Old and the New Testaments um, in the month of March up until Easter will be in the Gospels. So that's the plan. All right, so last week, Moses said, you can figure out how well-known a book of the Bible is by thinking about, you know, how many people you know with that name. This is very scientific. So he said, um, we all know lots of Daniels and Matthews and Marks and Lukes. Um, it turns out Moses even knows a Malachi. But does anyone here know a Haggai? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, I did get very curious about whether there were any Haggai's out there today, and so I Googled it. And on like page 10 of the search results, there he was. Haggai Matar. He is an award-winning Israeli journalist and a political activist. He's got like 5,000 friends on Facebook, which is 4,995 more than I have. Um, so I'd say that's not too shabby for a Haggai, right? All right, so who is Haggai, the original Haggai? He's um, one of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. There are five major prophets, 12 minor ones, and Haggai's one of the minor ones. Um, the book of Haggai happens to be one of the very shortest books of the Bible. Um, in my Bible, it's one page, front and back. Um, but it's a really powerful little book. God has spoken to me powerfully through this book. And through this book, he gives us these powerful messages about who Jesus is. Uh, and so that's why we want to study it as part of this series. Um, so there's one other thing that I got curious about as I was prepping for this message. I see a lot of Jesus in this message, and we're going to talk a lot about that. But I love Jesus, so I see Jesus everywhere. I wondered, would someone impartial reading Haggai see Jesus? Would maybe a computer see Jesus? Do you know what ChatGPT is? It's a chatbot, and it is all the rage on the internet right now. It's powered by artificial intelligence, and you can ask it questions, right? And it'll answer in a very conversational way, mimicking human language. And you can ask it to produce writing for you. It produces papers and letters and, yes, even sermons. So I asked ChatGPT, hey, write a sermon on Haggai. And it did, and it was so good. Um, I'm going to read a little bit to you. Um, it starts with... My dear friends, my dear friends, today I want to talk to you about the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. It kind of sounds like how I started, right? Um, it summarizes the book of Haggai in a really nice, crisp way, and then it presents three solid takeaways about the book of Haggai, and then it ends with, amen. A computer produced this. I mean, scary stuff. Um, but here's the thing. Here's what I discovered. 
ChatGPT, not a Christian. There's not one mention of Jesus anywhere in this sermon. And um, so there you go. ChatGPT, it can replace bloggers, it can replace developers, but it cannot replace teaching the word of the Lord. All right, my dear friends. Um, <laughs> let me tell you where we're going today. Um, I'm going to start by giving you some history some context um, so that um, when we walk through Haggai together, um, you can absorb it. You know where we came from. Um, when we're in Haggai, the focal point of Haggai is going to be uh, three encouragements that Haggai gives to God's people, and we're going to look for Jesus in those three encouragements. Um, and then to close, I'd like to get a little personal with you. I'd like to tell you what God's been speaking to me about my life through Haggai and what I think he's speaking to our church. All right, so we're going to start with the context. Um, in a sentence, Haggai is all about rebuilding the temple. But what is the temple? Why does it need rebuilding? Um, well, in the time of the kings, God's people uh, are back in the promised land, and they're reunited under King David. Um, and King David uh, starts the work of building a temple for God to dwell in, um, but he doesn't get to finish it because David's a warrior. God wants his... God wants his temple to be uh, a house of prayer, so he needs a man of peace to build his temple. So it's David's son Solomon who finishes the work of the temple. This is the first temple, and it's why we call it Solomon's Temple. After Solomon died, there's civil war again amongst the, the different tribes of Israel. Um, ten of the twelve tribes follow one of Solomon's servants who had rebelled against him. So ten of the twelve tribes go, um, and they form a northern kingdom called Israel. The remaining two tribes, they follow one of Solomon's sons, and so they stay in the line of David and Solomon, and um, they form the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. You see that um, in the Bible, both nations fall into sin and idolatry. Um, both are conquered. The people of both are exiled, and a lot of the Old Testament spent uh, foretelling this and then seeing it come to pass. Um, the, it's the Assyrians who conquer the northern tribe. And then at a different time, a different people, the Babylonians, they conquer the southern tribe. They conquer Judah. They destroy Jerusalem. And they destroy that first temple, Solomon's temple. Now, the northern kingdom, Israel, they never really come out of exile. You know, those tribes just sort of disperse over time. But the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom is important. It's special. Because God has foretold that the Messiah is going to come out of this uh, southern kingdom. So, 50 years later, the Persians capture the Babylonians. Right, so they take over. And they're a lot more sympathetic to God's people. In fact, um, the king of Persia, Cyrus, invites the Jews to go back to their land. And they say, you can rebuild the temple. Now, God's people, they go back to Judah in a few different waves. Um, we read all about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And one of the early waves of God's people to go back to the land is led by this guy named Zerubbabel. And uh, the king of Persia has made Zerubbabel the governor of Judah. And so he leads a group. The Bible calls them a remnant. He leads them back to Judah and leads them in the work of rebuilding the temple. But... There's always a but. Um, they build for only a couple of years um, because some of their neighbors, the Samaritans, don't want them to rebuild this temple, so they make it really hard for God's people. They even write a letter to the king of Persia um, saying that they should, re they should stop building the temple, and, um, and it's really hard for God's people. It's really discouraging, and so they stop. And 16 years 
go by. And this is where the book of Haggai begins. All right, so we're going to walk through the book together now. Like I said, it's really short. Um, just a couple of chapters. Um, it's one page of my Bible, front and back. And um, I'll give you a quick, quick summary now. So chapter one is the action chapter. It's where everything sort of happens. Um, God tells the people through the prophet Haggai to rebuild, and they do. Um, but rebuilding's not easy you can tell that the people get discouraged and they need encouragement from God. They need a word from God and they get three words for him, three encouragements from God. Um, and it's in these three messages that we see Jesus. All right, so let's begin with chapter one. God gets down to business right away. He gets down to the business of calling out his people. He says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Ooh, we know he's mad. He says, these people, right? Not my people. When my kids are bad, they're not my kids. When they're good, they're my kids, but when they're bad, they're not my kids. So he says, these people. Then he says in the very next verses, he says, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Remember, we just said that God's people faced opposition in the building. We just said that it's hard. It got really hard for them, and they stopped building, and they convinced themselves, if it's this hard, it must not be God's will. So they said, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. But God calls them out in the very next verses, right? And he says, these people, this remnant, I've called them out of exile for this purpose, to build my house, but... They're going to build nice houses for themselves. It says, give careful thought to your ways. You have uh, planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You see, he had said that they were building their own paneled houses while his house remains in ruin. And he says, give careful thought to your ways. There are consequences for your disobedience. He's connecting the condition of their lives with their disobedience. You eat but never have enough. You work, but where does all your money go? You live your life in dissatisfaction and frustration. Once God makes his point, he says in verse 8, Go up into the mountains and bring down the timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. He's giving them specific instruction to go do what he had asked them to do all along. And his message lands with the people. In verse 12, the Bible says they obeyed. The Bible says they feared the Lord. And God responds. Right away, he responds and he says, I am with you. And then he comes and he sends his spirit and his spirit stirs up the spirits of the leaders and of the remnant and they get back to work on building the temple. All right, so that's chapter one. That's the action chapter. Um, now let's move on to chapter two. In chapter two, you get the sense, again, that they become discouraged and they need to hear from God and so God speaks. He gives them three encouragements um, to help them uh, keep building through the prophet Haggai. And um, we're going to take a look at each of the three encouragements now, and we're going to find Jesus in them. All right, so here's the first encouragement. It should be, it should be up on the screen. Um, so this is Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 and 9. Um, he says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. 
What do you feel when you read these verses? You feel, you sense God's power, right? It's um, a powerful God, and it speaks to building a new house that's greater than uh, the former house. Um, this would have been encouraging to builders, but let's dig in a little bit deeper, because here's our first message about Jesus. I will once more shake the heavens and earth. Yes, God will once more shake the heavens and earth. But what does he mean by that? How does he do that? Well, it's through the person and the work of Jesus. The New Testament tells us this. So in Hebrews chapter 12, God wants us to know, hey, you remember that promise I made to you hundreds of years ago through my prophet Haggai? That was about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, at that time, his voice, Jesus' voice, shook the earth. And it says, he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So the New Testament tells us that this promise in Haggai was about Jesus. Now let's look at the next part. The next part says, the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Again, at face value, it may look like God's saying, hey, this house, this house is going to be greater, grander, nicer than the first house. Um, but I think he's talking about more than that. I think that God's talking about his presence, his glory. God's talking about himself. But how can God himself be greater in the second house than in the first house? Unless he's talking about the Messiah. And that's exactly who he's talking about. The New Testament, again, confirms this. Um, because the New Testament tells us that Jesus himself is in that second temple. Forty days after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary presented him at the second temple. When Jesus was 12 and his parents lost him at the Passover festival, they finally find him in this second temple. And he asks, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? The Bible says it was at the pinnacle of the second temple that the devil tempted Jesus. The devil says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And of course, we know Jesus resisted. It's in the second temple that Jesus throws out the money changers. He overturns the tables and he reestablishes the temple as a house of prayer. In this place, I will grant peace means in this place, the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah calls him, will walk through this temple, will preach in this temple, will heal in this temple, will pray in this temple. It's in this temple that Jesus walks through, but that's not it either, because the Bible tells us that Jesus himself is the new temple. In the New Testament, it says, um, Jesus tells the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is talking about himself. In Colossians, it says that in Christ lives the fullness of God in human body. God dwells in Christ as a new temple. That's encouragement number one. Let's move on to encouragement number two. Um, now we're a few months into the rebuilding, and the people need to be encouraged again. And so Haggai speaks again. He first reminds the remnant that when sin creeps into their lives, that it affects everything they do, everything they touch. Um, that's how it was when they built their own houses, their own paneled houses. Um, but now that they're building God's house, now that they're operating within God's will, Haggai is promising blessing. God is promising blessing. And it says in verse 19, this is up on the screen, is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. 
From this day on, I will bless you. What an encouraging word for the builders. Uh, Even at face value, the builders will understand that God's saying, your past disobedience no longer matters. The slate is wiped clean. Your past sin doesn't hold you back from God's future blessing. It's a picture of the redemptive work of Christ, right? And if we dig even just a little bit deeper, we can see what a beautiful picture it is. God wants people to know your future blessing isn't earned. It's given to you freely by me. God says, I'm giving you this promise now. While the seed is still in the barn, you haven't planted anything yet. I'm giving you this promise now uh, before anything's harvested, before the trees bear any fruit. God's laying the groundwork for his people to understand salvation, the ultimate blessing that's to come from Jesus. Our salvation isn't earned, it's given to us freely by God. All right, now for the third and final encouragement. It's about Zerubbabel. So um, we said that Zerubbabel was appointed by the king of Persia to be the governor of Judah. Um, He's a leader of the people and the leader of rebuilding the temple. And when you read Haggai, you'll see that all of the messages are addressed to three parties. They're addressed to Zerubbabel, the governor, uh, Joshua, the priest, and the remnant. And the third encouragement is this. God says to Haggai, tell Zerubbabel that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. So no doubt this encouraged God's people. Um, It's a clear blessing for their leader, and so by extension, it's a clear blessing for them. But again, there's a message about Jesus hidden within. Tell Zerubbabel that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. We talked about the shaking of the heavens and earth. It's a reference to Jesus. So Haggai is linking together Jesus and Zerubbabel, and here's why. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, you'll see him there. You'll see Zerubbabel. There are 10 names between David and Zerubbabel, sorry, 15 names between David and Zerubbabel, and there are 10 names between Zerubbabel and Jesus. God's chosen Zerubbabel, not just to lead the temple rebuilding, but to be the the key link to Jesus, the new temple himself. Um, And that's how Haggai ends. Two short chapters, three big promises about the Messiah. Did God's people understand all these promises? I don't know. But we know. We know these promises are made, and we know that they're fulfilled. The next book of the Bible after Haggai is the book of Zechariah, which is also focused on this same rebuilding of this same temple. Um, And from there, it would seem like the temple story is done. But it's not done. You know, we talked about Jesus being the new temple, but it's not done there either. Um, Something that God's been showing me is that the temple story is bigger than we realize. The entire Bible is the temple story. It starts in the beginning, in Genesis, when God dwells here with us, before original sin, in Eden, in the original temple. But then sin separates us, and God's been charting a course back to us ever since. With the flood, he remade the earth. He remade the original temple. Then when the time was right, he came to dwell with us in the tabernacle, a portable temple that he told Moses and the Israelites to build in the wilderness. 
Solomon built the first temple, a more permanent temple, but that was destroyed and was replaced by the second temple. Jesus himself walked through this temple, and Jesus himself was the temple. But this is where God's temple story really turns. Because before he died in John 16, Jesus says, it is for your good that I am going away, because unless I go, the Holy Spirit cannot come. Here's the thing. When we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to us to dwell in us. God dwells in us. We are the temple. And when we come together, when we come together, each of us as temples, we form the church, what the Bible calls the new holy temple. But even that isn't the end of the story. In Revelation 21, John has a vision of new creation, and this is what John says. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he goes on to say, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The very next chapter after Revelation 21 is the last chapter of the Bible. And in that chapter, it describes Eden restored. From Eden to Eden, the entire Bible is the temple story. It's the story of God just wanting to dwell with us again. Each of us has been grafted into God's temple story. And each of us has our own temple story. A story of God calling each and every one of us, wanting to be with each and every one of us. I'd like to share with you my temple story. So church wasn't a big part of my upbringing. We went occasionally, I have some memories of it, um, but it wasn't until college that I really felt personally drawn to the church. I pushed it away, um, but it found me again. Here in New York City, um, I moved to New York after college to start a job on Wall Street, and I started dating my husband. This was um, end of 2005, so almost 20 years ago. Uh, my husband, Jason, grew up in the church. His parents are believers. And God had been calling Jason his whole life. And like many of us, sometimes he answered. A lot of times he didn't. And when we started dating, this was a time when he was kind of sort of trying to answer. And so when we started dating, he asked me to go to church with him. And so we did. We started going to a little church called Mosaic Manhattan. Um, it was a church that was started in 2003 after 9-11 to reach people here downtown. So Jason and I started going to this little church. Um, and eventually I got baptized, we got married, and we started to build a life together. And uh, for a couple of years, it even seemed like we were building something pretty good. But then things changed. It wasn't all of a sudden. Um, we didn't suddenly stop going to church. It just kind of happened gradually. You know, we worked all the times. We worked weekends. And when we weren't working, we had a weekend house. We had money and friends and ambitions. The only thing we didn't have was time, at least not time for God. Um, and it went on like this for years. You know, our lives were just driven by nothing but our own ambitions and priorities, our own agenda. Um, but there came a time when that was no longer an option because in 2013, God brought down our paneled house. Jason was arrested for something he didn't do. And for two years, 
we waited for his trial. Two years we waited for him to clear his name. Two years we walked around covered in shame. Two years we didn't know what the future held. Two years I wondered if he would go to jail for something he didn't do. But God finally had our attention again. We started going to church again. Jason saw a sign for a church a few blocks from our apartment that he had never heard of before. It was called Lower Manhattan Community Church, LMCC, and we started coming here. And I really don't know how long it took us to realize um, that LMCC was Mosaic Manhattan. And I, I don't mean that metaphorically. It's literally the same church. It had changed its name. It changed its location, but it was the same church. The message was so clear. God was calling us, and we finally listened. So we finally began to build his house instead of our own, his vision for our lives instead of our own. And you could almost superimpose our story on top of the story of God's people, right? The builders in Haggai. We had started to build a good life, um, and just like they had started to build the temple, but then our own agendas got in the way, and we set down God's agenda for too many years. Uh, when we finally turned to him, we finally realized those years were spent in utter frustration and dissatisfaction. But once we turned back to God, all of that was in the past. Once we turned back to God, he was just waiting to bless us. This chapter of our lives has been filled, has been rich with blessing. Um, we've had three kids. Noah, who's five, Lucy, who's three, and baby Grace, who's three months old. Um, Jason started a company, and then another company. Uh, I recently started a company, um, but the blessing goes so much deeper than that. God himself has been the blessing, learning who he is and who he says we are. Knowing that we are walking in his calling for our lives, there is a deep soul-level satisfaction that comes with living according to his vision for our lives that can't be replicated by all the things we do to satisfy ourselves. It can't be replicated by living in paneled houses. So I'm standing up here telling you a Cliff's Notes of a Cliff's Notes version of my temple story because of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, which a friend of mine sent to me the week of Jason's trial, it says, Praise be to the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. That's why I'm standing here. That's why if anyone wants to hear more of my story and hear more of Jason's story, just ask. It's what we're doing here. It's part of what God has called us to. Almost three years ago, my community group read the book of Haggai, and it just, it grabbed me. I couldn't stop thinking about it, this little book of the Bible. And after reading it and rereading it, um, one day the Lord put on my heart, Haggai is a message for our church. I wasn't on the leadership team then. I wasn't a lay pastor. So I called one of them, and I said, hey, um, I think God might be talking to me about our church. And it turns out he was because two weeks later they called me and asked me to join the team of pastors. Um, through Haggai, God was giving me a heads up. He was preparing me to become one of the builders of this church. 
Now, almost three years later, God's speaking to me through Haggai again. Um, so Phil and Marcy designed this beautiful teaching this series, Who Do, Who Do You Say I Am? And um, a few months ago, um, and Phil just reminded me of this this morning, a few months ago, Phil said, hey, like, what are you feeling up to? What do you feel drawn to? I said, I don't know, but I've got one message in me this spring. That's it. I have the capacity for one message. Um, and Phil asked me, well, will you give the message on Haggai? And I was sort of startled. I said, wait, do you know how God spoke to me through Haggai? Did you see that email that I sent to the pastors a couple of years ago? He said, no. He didn't know. He hadn't seen it. Marcy didn't know. She hadn't seen it. God's speaking. He's speaking to me, and he's speaking to our church. Um, so we're coming out of a season of transition here at our church, uh, and we are beginning the work of rebuilding. And the, rebu the rebuilding has to start with each of us. It has to start in each of our hearts. Um, in Haggai, when the Jews are convicted of their sin, their first act of obedience is to fear the Lord. Their first act of obedience has to do with their hearts. Then the work of their hands came. Then they began to rebuild the temple. The rebuilding has to begin with each of us. Um, a couple of weeks ago, a group of college students in Asbury, Kentucky, went to church, and they haven't left. Thousands of people have joined them since, and... My husband, Jason, was one of them. On Monday, he dropped everything he was doing, and he flew to Asbury to see what God's doing there. And um, I have notes, his notes here, and I'm going to share a couple of things with you. These are the things that um, really jumped out to me. Um, this is Jason describing what he saw. He said, everyone was singing and praising the Lord with all their hearts. It's hard to describe the power. It was peaceful power. Someone described the mood as the governance of Jesus orderly, yet powerful. I saw old men on their knees worshiping and young men laying hands on them. There were open mic testimonies where people shared their deepest trauma in front of complete strangers. Um, the Asbury, uh, Asbury University professor was there and he shared some words and this is what um, Jason shared from his message. Um, the professor shared that Jonathan Edwards defined awakening as the intensification and acceleration of the normal work of the Holy Spirit. And the pastor asked everyone to focus on that word, normal. He then shared the following. He said there have been something like 22 revivals in the Bible and each of them follows this order, heart, home, church, then city. Again, I think the message to us, to this church, is clear. In this season of rebuilding the temple, of rebuilding the church, the work has to begin with each of our, us, has to begin in each of our hearts. And so as I close here today, I want you to reflect on that, and I want you to reflect on this message. And I want to invite each of you to pray this question of what has God called me to? I think the thing is, most of us actually know what that is. So the real question is, where am I? Where am I in answering that call? Let's pray together. God, thank you for inviting us into your temple story Thank you for speaking to us, calling us, inviting us, never giving up on us, God, even when we build our own houses instead of yours. This morning, I want to invite you, Holy Spirit, to do your work, to do your normal work, to tell us what we've been called to, to speak vision and conviction and correction into our lives, to transform our hearts, to rebuild each of us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.